right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 14, as we continue where we left off here last week, Acts chapter 14. Now, I'm going to give you a word of warning. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. You'll say, how is that different than most weeks? (laughs) Not much, but you're going to get more today. (laughs) I'll tell you in advance. Um, Title of the message is Strengthening the New Believers. Um... As we get into today's message, I want to just say something that really is, I believe, true. I think probably one of the most tragic circumstances in the life of a believer is to not have someone disciple or mentor them in their faith. As a result, many people new in their faith never get grounded and strong in the knowledge and application of God's Word. And truly, it is tragic. It's tragic that... As someone comes to know Jesus, they're not taught how to walk with Him. They're not taught how to pray. They're not taught how to have boldness and courage. They're not taught how to study the Bible. Well, that, we reserve that for Sunday school teachers, church leaders, pastors, missionaries. That's their job. No, it's all of our job. And if you're a child of God, you should be in the Word. You say, well, do I need someone... In a perfect world, no. But in the world that we live in, the encouragement and support and teaching and mentoring from one another helps us all grow deeper in our faith, deeper in our knowledge of God's Word, and helps us be more accountable to our obedience to Him. And one of the most tragic things is is when someone comes to know Jesus and they don't learn about Him. Someone says, well, you know, I've been in church for 30 years. That's all I need. No, it's not all you need. In fact, that's the least minimal part of what you need. You need a daily relationship, a daily walk with God where you just take time to read God's Word and to study it. You know, it's just the reality of what is needed. Um, How would you like if your doctor, if he's an oncologist, To say, you know what, I went through seven years of college and medical school and I'm good. I don't need any more training. I'm good. Well, yeah, but you graduated 12 years ago. What what if in 12 years he didn't keep up all of his certifications? Would you want him to be your surgeon? No, not me. I'm telling you. I thought my my, my endocrinologist was great. I liked the one that just came out. The youngest one that looked like she was 14 that really irritated me when I first got there. Of course, they're all starting to look like they're 14 now as we get older, right? You know, but (laughs) truth. But the reality is you want people around you that are growing, that will encourage you, that will help you, that will hold you accountable, that will help you become the person that God wants you to become. And it's tragic that so many come into churches not having a foundation to help them through the difficult parts of life. And so let me just encourage you, if you need to be grounded in God's Word, I encourage you, don't put it off. Ask me, ask one of us. We'll pair you with someone that will help you and, and teach you God's Word as, we, as, you're, as you're living life. Uh, the last thing you need is another seminary course. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just doing life together, growing in God's Word. And that's really what happened here in Acts 14. And so as we get into it, I'm going to be kind of jumping around a little bit, but I want to build a foundation of why this is important. 
And hopefully when you walk out, you say, man, I need that. I want that. And I'm going to find somebody that I can grow with. So let's just take a moment. Let's read Acts 14, 21 to 28. And then uh, we will have a word of prayer and get started. So verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had uh, appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia, now when they had preached the word in Perga, and they went down to Atalia, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Lord, I pray, God, that even now that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, I do pray that if there be one here today, Lord, that does not know you as your Savior, might today be a day of salvation for them. But Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, that are here today under your word, Lord, that we would have a desire to grow, to know your word, to get grounded in it, and Lord, not be ashamed of it. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at our text here. Let's start breaking this down just a little bit. And first of all, before we get too far, it says that in verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel. You know, I found in this day and age, the gospel, that word, that phrase has sometimes become a buzz phrase or a buzzword. The gospel, the gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4 makes that very clear. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So he says, this is the gospel that I preached to you. It's that you, what you've received, it's what you stand upon. He says, by which also you are saved. So it's the gospel that saves us. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny that in our day and age and in the culture that we li- live, you know, there's church and ease, you know, that language that sometimes, you know, older Christians who've been saved for a long time talk, and the rest of the world are like, what? What did he just say? I don't know. Um, you know, we don't want to talk church and ease or Christian ease, but what does it mean to be saved? Well, he goes on and tells us what the gospel is and why it saves us in verse 3. Uh, or, I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 2, he says, uh, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached you, unless you believed in vain. So he says, it's a true faith that you must believe. It's not half-heartedly, it's not flippantly, it's not casual. He says, unless you believe in vain, then it doesn't have any effect on you. But if you believe it fully and completely, he says, for I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Do you realize that in the Old Testament it was prophesied that a Savior would come, that He would be the sacrificial Lamb, that He would die, that He would shed His blood, that we might have forgiveness of sins and be able to put our faith and trust in Him and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that we might be saved. So what He's reminding them, He says, this is what was talked about. That He says, I received this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Prophecy fulfilled. Old Testament said it would happen. New Testament, it did. The Bible proved to be true. 
So he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here's the thing. The reality is that Jesus Christ came, according to John chapter 3, verse 17, he said, didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we as believers have an opportunity to share the good news, to share the hope that we have in Jesus for those who do not yet have it. Um, I shared with someone the other day, they had a question. In fact, it was a counselor at camp. And they asked this question after the service. He said, you know, I began to think, I wonder if this is all really true. Is it really even true? And uh, the reality is, yes, it is true. But I said, here's the deal. If I live my entire life believing that there is a God who loved me so much that he would send his son Jesus to die on a cross, shed his blood, that I might have forgiveness of sins, and I put my faith and trust in that God who did that, and I get to the end of my life, and I find out there is no God, what have I lost? Nothing. So I tried to do what was good. I tried to be kind. I tried to love those around me. What's wrong with all that stuff? What's wrong with trying to be holy and righteous? And what's wrong with trying to do what is good and helpful to my fellow citizens and fellow mankind? Nothing. If I live my whole life trying to do what is good and kind and right, and I get to the end of my life, there is no God. I've lost nothing. So as a good person. Big deal. But if I get to the end of my life believing that there is no God and find out that there is, what have I lost? Everything. And this lady came up to me, this young lady came up to me, and she goes, I have never thought about it like that. And then I shared one other thing that I've shared with you before. I said, you know, how many of you think you're like 50% sure you're going to heaven? You know, several hands go up. How many of you think you're like 75% sure you're going to heaven? A few more hands go up. How many of you think you're 90% sure you're going to heaven? Yeah. Well, how many of you think you're like only 20% sure you're going to heaven? A few hands go up. And I asked this question. I said, is it to scare you? No, no, not at all. Just to make you think. Just to be rational about it. So if you're 50% sure you're going to heaven, that means you're 50% sure you're going to hell. If you're 25% sure you're going to heaven, that means you're 75% sure you're going to hell. Right? If you're 90% sure you're going to heaven, you're still that 10% positive that you could end up in hell. But here's the beautiful thing about it. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the beauty of it. Is that God says that you don't have to hope, you don't have to wish, you don't have to think. You can know that Jesus is your Savior and that heaven is your home. But here's the other thing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul talking. He says, I am not ashamed of this. Think about this. Can you truly say you're not ashamed of the gospel? It's easy to come to church and say, Well, I'm at church, ain't I? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm at church. I mean... Yeah, you're surrounded by every other, one, every other person who says they're not ashamed. But what about when you're only one out in the middle of a bunch? Are you still not ashamed? When your neighbor comes over and says, why do you believe in that silly stuff? Are you still not ashamed? Or when your coworker says, well, that's stupidity. Are you still not ashamed? Because that's where life gets real. That's where the rubber meets the road and where I have to really contemplate, do I really believe in this Jesus or is that just something I do on Sunday? 
He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, I believe it because I've experienced it and I know it's for real. You say, is shame really a big, big deal? Uh, I would say, I'm, I threw a couple of new verses in there, guys, that you don't have. But um, Mark chapter 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Listen to this. Is shame really a big deal? Mark eight thirty-eight. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me, and you know anything about the Bible, these are the red words, they're the important ones. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when it comes into the glory of his Father with all holy his angels, with all his holy angels. Think about that. He says, if you're going to be ashamed of me, <laughs> I'm going to remember that. That's startling. We say, well, that's mean. That's cruel. Is it? The reality is, he says, the bottom line is, if you're going to be ashamed of me, why should I not be ashamed of you? I died for you. That's pretty strong. We don't like to think that the God in heaven... Listen, choices and consequences, right? I was sharing this this morning in, in adult Bible hour. My wife is a softy when it comes to kids in her classroom. And I look at her and I said, not me. If I were in that class, those kids would get the F they deserve. Just saying. You don't do your homework? Too bad. That's enough. You knew just like every other person that this was due Friday. You chose not to do it. Therefore, suffer the consequence. You get an F. But then my wife comes in. Well, I know you didn't do it, but if you if, if, hurry up and get it done, I'll, I'll still give you credit for it. No! It's not fair. That kid over there and that girl over there and that boy over there, they did the work. They put the time in. They got the assignment done on time, and they got a good grade, and you can't give that kid a good grade. Well, I don't want them to fail. You're not giving him the grade. That's what he earned by the consequences of his choices. Think about it. If I am choosing to be ashamed of God, what is the consequence of that? It's not God being hateful. It's not God being judgmental. It's not God saying you don't deserve this. He said, listen, this is a relationship factor. If you know me, love me, don't be ashamed of me. And he makes that very clear. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 26, he says this a little bit differently. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when it comes down in all of his glory and his fathers and the end of his holy angels. He said, listen, the bottom line is, if you are going to be ashamed of me, I'll remember that. Oh, that's so mean. It might be mean, but it's reality of choices and consequences. Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 22, um, sorry, 32 and 33. He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, think about that, before men, 
him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So is this shame thing. God loves us so much that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross. And if we claim to know Jesus, we should not be ashamed of him. I remember a couple of times I put a sticker on my, of my church in the past on the back window of my truck. And then you go speeding around like a demon. My wife will look at me and she goes, you know you got church represented on your window? Shh. Remember Father Bright? Come, come. <gasps> Quiet. But isn't it true? Our testimony speaks. What, how we live, what we do, how we say things, it speaks. And does it speak to loving and boasting in, as we talked about in Psalm 34, or does it speak to the issue of denying Him, being ashamed of Him? Hopefully we can say this gospel that has changed our life I stand on it. I'm not ashamed of it. It has changed my life. And if you know Jesus, and have truly put your faith and trust in Him, you should not be ashamed because He has changed your destination from hell to heaven. From a life of meaningless, getting through it because it's hard, to one day realizing that my true citizenship is in heaven with my Father and having a relationship with Him. Back in Acts chapter 14. So it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and remember they were just coming from Derby in verse 20. Verse 20 so when they preached the, the gospel of that city, made many disciples there. So God blessed their work. They were teaching there. They were preaching there. Disciples were, were made there. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And here's what they were doing. Three things. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So three things that they did there. First of all, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Um, so what does that mean to strengthen the souls of the disciples? Um, I really believe that it has to do with two things. By equipping and teaching them. Do you realize that part of my job as a pastor is to equip and teach? That's what God brought me here for, right? To equip and teach. You didn't hire me to do a job that you don't want to do, right? That's reality, right? Not my job to do your job. My job is to do my job. And your job is to do something very similar to mine, right? And that you're to be a Christian representing Jesus well in all that you say and do. So my job is to equip and teach. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, this is where it gives us the validation for this. It says, And he he himself, God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the what? Equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So my job is to equip you to do what? Ministry. Real simple, right? So if my job is to equip, your job is to what? Use it. To do something with it. To, to do the work that God's called you to do. And that's going to look differently for all of us, Right? We're not going to all do the same thing. Not all of you are going to get up here because some of you wouldn't do it. But neither am I going down to your like two-year-old nursery class either. Um, I'll give them all the candy they want, but then they can go home and be hyper at home. Um, but I don't want to do your job just like you don't want to do my job, right? God equips us to do the work that he's called us to do. And that's why he has saved you. So he gave some you know, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, those who claim to know Jesus, 
for the work of the ministry. So if God saved you, remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? And then he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created unto good works. That's why Jesus saved you. To do good works. He saved you to do ministry for his name's sake. To bring glory to him through all said and done in this life. So, once again, if God has called us and equipped us to do ministry, what's your ministry? Well, I, I, I go to church. That's not ministry. I give to the church. That's not ministry. I'm a good person. That's not ministry. Ministry includes representing Jesus in all that you do. Now, you can represent Jesus in all those things. But the reality is to do ministry means, as it says in James chapter 2, 14 and through 26, faith without works is dead. What is the works that validates my, my, my statement of knowing Jesus? It doesn't have to be here. It could be around your neighborhood. It could be at your workplace. It could be with your relatives at their house. But what is the work that is validation of your claims to know Jesus? Because we're his workmanship, created unto good works. So, he gave pastors, teachers, for to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long do you do this? Till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Wait a minute. God has an expectation for all of us to be in unity regarding the faith? He does. So, it's not this idea that pastor knows more because he went to school for this. He took extra classes and studied the Greek and Hebrew. And I didn't study Hebrew, by the way. I ain't doing that. Um, I did have 10 credits of Greek, though, that I struggled through. Um, pastor has all this knowledge, and uh, then everyone, you know, leaders are underneath him, and then you know, Joe Schmo and the congregation is down here, and then all the kids are down. It's not like that. There is no hierarchy of, of knowledge or knowledge that brings higher position. He says, till we all come into the unity. That means the expectation is that we are all growing in the faith and knowledge of God's Word. Every one of us. That's why he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, I am not ashamed of the, of the what? The Word of God, because we're to study it as a, as a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's the expectation that God has for all of us, is that we would be as the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see if what is said is so. Do we spend time learning what God wants us to learn so that we can use that knowledge to serve Him and to be ministers for Him? So he says, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to, per, to a perfect man. And the word perfect, we're not ever going to be perfect as we understand perfect. It means maturity. So we are mature. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every windom doctrine. Think about that. When you came to know Jesus, that's why I'm talking about what is tragic is not having the ability to take your word that God has given you to study it and to apply it where someone didn't teach you, that whoever led you to the Lord, when you made that profession of faith, we should have been taught to study God's word and given us the expectation of our commitment to him. Why? So that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting. Now think about this. There are a million ministries on TV 
on the radio, on the internet, in book. And some of us have the idea, well, he's wrote, wrote, a, wrote a book, it must be good. Well, he's on TV, it must be right. Oh, he's, he, his ministry brings in $3 million a year, he must know what he's talking about. <coughs> Wrong. And the only way you will know that it's not truth is if you know the truth. But if you're not spending time in God's Word and getting to know the truth, you'll be deceived and be like those children tossed to and fro. You've got to get in the Word. I can't stress that enough. That's why they went in Acts chapter 14, after they had preached the Gospel, after converts were made, they began to strengthen them in their faith so that they would not be immature in their knowledge of who God was. And it goes on, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. Do you realize that sometimes confronting what is being said in our culture and in some of our churches, even though it is wrong, it must be confronted in love? You see, one of the things I was trying to reiterate to these teenagers at camp a couple weeks ago is that this is our authority. And First Peter says there was no prophecy of Scripture was by the will of man. In other words, it's not man's opinion. It's not man's biases or prejudices. It's not man's experiences. It's not his whims. It's God's Word. And if you believe that God's Word is inspired, that means it's God-breathed. That means there's without air. You know, I, I ran into someone uh, a while ago. I, I shared this with our dinner in a study crowd that this, this guy up at Sunoco said, he goes, well, I just believe there's lots of contradictions. I said, can you, can you share one with me? Well, there's just lots of contradictions in there, and that's why I don't believe it. Okay, you said that, but can you show me one? Well, they're just, well, I, 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 show me just one contradiction where it says one thing in one spot and contradicts it in another. I promise you there are no contradictions in God's Word. But most people who claim that Claim it because somebody said it. But they can't tell you where. They just believe it's there somewhere. And that gives me justification, rationalization, and an excuse not to believe it. False, but nonetheless. So he says, From who the whole body, joined together, knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He said, I have given you this book to show you what is right, how to keep it right, to show you what's wrong so that you can make it right. That's the four things there. This is why he gave us his word. It's not just a book of a bunch of stories. It's God's Word. It's His love letter to us. And one more in Acts chapter 20, verses 31 and 32 says, Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. As he was talking, he said, Listen, and we're going to get this some point in Acts chapter 20, but he says, I warned you with tears in my eyes, with all sincerity, for three years. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And the word sanctified means set apart. Those who know Jesus. 
He said, I've given you everything that you need to know Him and to be set apart for Him. So they began to equip them to be the child of God that God wanted them to be. They didn't just go to that, to that town, preach a bunch of messages, and then leave. As we're going to find out in just a minute. So then we also find out, number two, they not only equipped and taught them in their faith, number two, they exhorted them to continue in the faith. Why do you have to can, can, uh, exhort someone to continue in something? Because the possibility of quitting is so prevalent. How many of us know people who made a profession of faith who said, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to learn all that God has for me to learn, I'm going to get involved, and they walked out a little later because somebody irritated them. How many know that person? All of us. Maybe even you've been there for a while where you walked away and said, I need to come back. Thank God you did. But the reality is, he said, I want to encourage them not to give up. Don't quit. Yes, it's going to be hard. Promise you, it's going to get difficult. Yes, it will. Just know that. Someone's going to irritate the fire out of you at church. Somebody who claims to know Jesus is just going to rub you the wrong way, I promise. Because that person's in every church. That person's in every community. I know them. You do too. But here's what you need to remember. I'm not here because of that person. I'm here because of God's working in my life. I'm not, not comparing my life to that person who claims to know Jesus. I'm comparing my life to Jesus. I'm not here for them because people will let you down. People will frustrate you. Amen? I, I thought that would be a little more hearty, but... Um, <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, and here's how he said I did it, as a father does his own child, that you could, would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, I spent time with you, encouraging, loving you, even as a father would do to his child, that you would just walk worthy. Why? Because we need that encouragement not to quit, not to give up. Not to just stop, even though we know it's right to keep going. But it's easy to quit. Someone said this. Someone did that. Somebody made me upset. Yep. It's going to happen. But once again, our model is not other people. And I'm not here at this church because of you, believe it or not. I'm here because God wants me here. And 1 Corinthians 3 tells me that God places each and every one of you in the body as he sees fit. Think about that. If you're here, it's not an accident. I believe God directed you. And what you do with it is between you and God. It says in John 8, 31, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He says, I exhorted them to continue in the faith. And then number three, they reminded them of the many tribulations they would go through. You have to know difficult times are going to come if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you will truly not be ashamed of the gospel, there are going to be people who will be irritated and just, just flat out angry because you don't agree with them. Listen, what I believe is based on this book. And if you want to argue, me, argue with me, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God's word because I'm standing on it. You say, well, you're so judgmental towards the LGBT. No, God's, argue with God. He's the one that made the rule. I didn't. Well, you are so judgmental about, argue with God. It's in his word. I didn't make this rule. 
I didn't say it was right or wrong. He did. What did Moses say when all the children of Israel were griping and complaining? Your griping, your mumbling is not against me, but against God. Because when God's Word says something that goes against my desire, i got a choice to make. I can get ticked off and angry, or I can say, Lord, you're right. Help me obey. That's the, that's the choices. Well, you, you, you know, God understands abortion in certain... No, He doesn't. He says taking of a life is wrong. It's not my opinion. It's God's. And so you get mad at Christians, and people will get mad at you because you hold a position. I'm not trying to tick the world off. It's just the reality of my decision because it's based on God's Word. People are not going to agree. But when I stand firm on God's Word, they're not angry with me. They're angry with God. And that's what you have to remember. So difficult times are going to come. How do I know that? Well, we've got a whole history of it in God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. (laughs) 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you are truly living for God, there are going to be people who are going to get angry with you. Your God is so, so mean. No. He's a just God. He's a perfect God. He's a loving God. John chapter 16, verse 33, These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He says there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trying times. But in me you will have peace. I can, I can walk freely in this life with peace knowing that there's going to be a whole world that doesn't agree with me. And it's okay. I'm not responsible for what this world believes. I'm responsible for what I do before God. Galatians 1.10 says, If I should please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The reality is, I'm here to serve Jesus. I want to serve you. I want to be your friend. I want to help you and encourage you in your walk. But there are going to be times that what I say will irritate you. And the bottom line is, you have a choice to make. You can look in God's Word to see if what I said is true, or you can get mad at me because you don't want to believe it. That's the choices. And I hope that we can be on the same page. But I just know in this world there's going to be struggles, and we don't always agree with one another. But it's not whether or not I agree with Ken, it's whether or not I agree with what God's Word says. 2 Timothy 2, 3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, say, how, how can these times of difficulty be for our good? I mean, so here they are. He's warning them of, of number one, that, that you know, strengthening their faith and equipping them and teaching them to stand firm in what they believe. He's, he's encouraging them to stay strong because they're going to go through times of difficulty. But how can these times of difficulty be, be good for us? James chapter 1, verse 2-4 through four says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, difficult situations, trying circumstances. He says, count it all joy. Woo, sign me up. Rough week. Everyone's mad at me. They don't like where I stand on God's Word. They're all mad at me. Woo! No, that's not what we're talking about. The joy comes from knowing that I'm standing where God wants me to stand. If you don't agree with that, I'm really sorry, but I want you to know truth. And let me ask you a question. If you had a teenager son who was dabbling in alcohol and drugs, and it was obvious and apparent that they're going down a wrong road, wouldn't you try to warn them? Say, listen, if you keep this up, you're going to 
you're gonna, it's going to go to destruction. If you keep doing this, it, it, it's going to cause major problems. If you keep taking steps in this direction, you're, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Wouldn't you as a father who loves your child warn them, right? So he says, why won't God do the same thing with us? Whom he loves, he chastens, he chastises, so that he can bring us back into line. But he says, you have to know that you're going through these difficult times. But the testing of your faith, these difficult circumstances, produces patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. He says, you have everything you need if you'll fall in line with what God has for you. And 1 Peter 5.10, But may the God of all grace, who called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. He goes, wait a minute. After you have suffered, well, sign me up. Not. After you have suffered for a while, perfect or establish, strengthen, and settle you. Every time I go through a difficult situation, it's a reminder of how good God is. In the moment, I hate it. In the moment when I'm in the center of the disappointment, the struggle, the frustration, I just want to say, why God? And as I've said many times, in the moment, I don't like it. I wouldn't choose it. And I'm really a little bit ticked off he's allowed it in my flesh. But it's so amazing to be able to look back three months later, six months later, a year later, whatever it is, and see that God got you through it. In the moment, it's hard. Some of you have lost loved ones. In the moment, that's hard. But you look back a year later and you say, God got me through it. Some of you have been through cancer. In the moment, it's hard. But then you look back and say, God got me through it. You know, we went through this difficult trial, lost a job. In the moment, that's hard. But you look back and you say, God got me through it. Right? God is so good. We don't enjoy the moment of suffering. But in the long run, God works. Let's go back to our text one more time. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Um, so actually, verse 22, they strengthened the souls. They exhorted them to continue in their faith. They reminded them of the difficulty they would face. And then verse 23 says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they appointed elders, fasted, and prayed in the churches where they saw disciples come to Jesus, those who were following Jesus. And what was the response? Why would they do that? Because people need leaders. People need someone that will guide them. And God has chosen, as we saw in Ephesians 4, that he gave pastors, teachers, bishops, evangelists to equip the saints. But as we come into... What we see here in Acts chapter 14 says after they had preached the gospel, after they had instructed them in their faith, after they had reminded them what they're going to go through, after they had urged them not to quit, they appointed elders in all these places. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, it says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and, to, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So what is the response of the people? To recognize them. We're not here just because we've got nothing else to do on Sunday. 
<laughs> I mean, we can think of other things to do on Sunday, but this is where our heart is. I say pastors live with extreme disappointment. They really do. You say, well, why pastors? Because you don't make enough money? No. Is it because that you don't have enough authority? No. Is it because you can't do what you want to do? No. It has nothing to do with any of that. You know why pastors live with extreme disappointment? Bottom line is, we study God's Word, we see the joy of what it can do, and we know what it can do for you, but you choose not to do it. You're missing out on the blessings of God's Word and in obedience to God. And I want that for you. I want you to know Jesus like God reveals to us sometimes. You know, do we have a different God? Do we have a different book? No! But you have to study it and make it a part of your life. And I'm disappointed that some of you won't make it a priority in your life. And you're missing out. That's disappointing, that you're missing out on what God has for you because you're choosing not to do it. I don't have any special revelation that you don't have. I don't have any different pages than what you have. i got the same book. But I know that some of you are going to go home and you're going to put it on the shelf until next week. How do I know that? Because that's reality for a lot of us. Say, well, pastors do that every No, we do it sometimes too. Because we're human. I I flaw in that area sometimes. Talk to my kids. I'm trying. I went to my first church, uh, sat around the pulpit committee, and uh, we were, had this exchange for a while, and we were just talking back and forth, and they're asking about my background, this and that. And finally, this one person on the pulpit committee goes, Well, Pastor Ken, tell us like some of your flaws. What do you struggle with? I didn't even miss a beat. I said, well, if you make me mad, I'm going to deck you. I said, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to deck you. I just want you to know I'm human like you guys. And I looked at it and I said, if you cut me, I bleed red just like you. Pastors are not perfect. Don't treat them like they are. We are all sinners saved by God's grace. We are all in this journey. We're all learning. We should all be taking another step in our walk with him. But he says, recognize those who labor among you or over you in the Lord. Say they're over you? I didn't say God did. Because he, just so you know, I'll have to stand before him one day for what I do here. A little bit scary. I hope we're doing things right <laughs> according to his will. First Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule over you well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Double honor. What does that mean? God says, honor those who labor among you. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. remember those who rule over you. In other words, pray for me. Pray for our elders. Pray for our leaders. God knows how much I need it. I do not have all the answers. I do not have all the solutions. I told someone uh, three days ago who had put a message on Facebook, I'm struggling, I'm contemplating suicide, blah, 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 blah. And I said, call me. I may not have the answers. I may not know what to tell you, but I will listen and I will pray with you. We don't have all the answers just because we're pastors. And I hope you don't think we do. But if you come to me and have a question, if I don't know it, I'm going to find it for you. I'll do my best I can to point you to God's Word and where, where it would address that issue. Hebrews thirteen seven: Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I will stand before God for how I lead this church. But let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable. I love it. 
I love my church. I tell all my pastors, I said, you're jealous, dude. I don't want your problems. I do not want to go to your church. Nope. A couple times in the last couple of years, I've had calls that said, hey, would you come be the preaching pastor at this church? 1,000, 2,000 people. Just preach. You have to do nothing else. Just stand up and preach. Do nothing else. Nope. I'd split the church. Why? It's too big. I don't like huge churches. It's just not my thing. I, I, I would rather have a church that everybody can get involved in rather than three people who are professionals. I'd split. I'd split it up. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, so I'm not your guy. Move on. I love my church. I love my church. Thank you, sir. But this is where God has got me, and I love it that he put me here. He didn't make any mistakes in that. Well, maybe some of you might think that, but I love what God's doing here. Pastors don't leave churches because everything's great. Oh, God led me to this. You're right. Then you find out six months later, yeah, there's a big problem between this family and this family, and you're in the middle of it. But God led you elsewhere. No, I would rather work on the problems that we know we have here because we're a family. And family loves each other, or should love each other. 1 Peter 5, 1-4, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd of the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseer, not by compulsion, but willingly. Isn't that awesome? Not for dishonest gain, but for eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. He is the chief shepherd. I am the under shepherd. And I love what I get to do here. Not... By compulsion, I hope you don't think I'm just telling everybody what to do. You know, I hope that I'm not a person that you think, well, he just says and everybody, no. That's not my desire. We work together, right? I, I, I hear horror stories of church business meetings. I'm like, I'm glad we don't have that. I love what God's doing here. I love what God, God is using you. Are we perfect? No. We're never going to be as long as we're on this earth. But I know who's in control. I know who God is doing a work in and how he's doing that work. And I see what he's doing, and I'd love to be a part of it. One more. I just want you to think about this. Notice all the places they were ministering. I mean, if we were to go back and just tally the villages that Peter and John and now Paul and Barnabas were going to, look at all these. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, Adelia, then back to Antioch. Here's the point. And I think this is something we can learn from. Does God want you to travel from city to city to city? No. no. Here's, I think, the bigger picture. They didn't just sit still expecting everybody to come to them. you got to go to where people are. And when you go there, serve. Minister. They didn't wait for the people to come to them. They went to where the people were. And when they got to some of these places, just a reminder of Paul said it's not going to be easy. As I mentioned last week, 2 Corinthians 11.25, three times I was beaten with rods. Sign me up. Not. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've been in the deep. Ugh. Sounds like a great adventure. One that I'll pass on, by the way. 
Galatians 6.17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He goes, you can't hurt me. <laughs> Look at my scars. I've already been through it, dude. You, you can't hurt me. That's why we saw last week. They beat him and left him for dead, drug him outside the city. And what does he do? Gets up and goes back in. He said, well, that guy's just like a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. I'm going to keep going. Not Paul. Two more. 2 Timothy 3.10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, Lystra. All these places that he went, were they easy places to minister? No. What persecution I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Last one. Acts 16. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. Well, wasn't he already there? Yep, went right back. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the, because of the Jews who were in that region. So they all knew that his father was a Greek. What he had just done was become all things to all men so that he could by some, some possibility save some. He says, I'm willing to become all things to all people. Who are we willing to sacrifice and give up our time, talents, treasures for to reach? Knowing that God is going to honor and bless our endeavors. He says, don't be weary in well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. He wants you to keep going. Verse 27 says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles so that they stayed there a long time in their disciples. There are several things, and I'm just going to close with this. They didn't sit still. They went where God led them to go. And we need to be willing to go where God leads us. And as we are going... We share our faith. We share of what God has done for us. He encouraged those who know him not to quit. Encourage people who are going through struggles to know you're not alone in this. Because if you live for God, you're going to face some difficult circumstances. But here's the thing. You're going to help get them grounded and help keep their focus on Jesus and help them to, you know, to get establishing God's word. I don't know about you, but I need that. We'll say, well, you're, you've been a Christian for a long time. Yeah, and I haven't arrived yet. There's so much I don't know. I had one professor in college. He had five doctorates in theology. He's a lifer. Way beyond me. And they're all different. Old Testament Semitic languages, New Testament theology. This, five of them. And he, and he looks at us in class one day and he goes, man, there's just so much about the Bible I don't know. <laughs> this, guy is, this guy is a lifer, and he's like, none of us have arrived. And it's not a matter of how much you know or don't know. It's a matter of using what you do know and wanting more. Draw close to him. I would just challenge you. Take what we're learning from Paul and now Barnabas in this passage. 
and just realize, let's not be ashamed. Let's go forward with boldness and power with the help of the Holy Spirit to do what He's asked us to do. Let's not sit back and let someone else do it. Let's let God work in and through us. Let us be a part of it. He'll guide. He'll direct. He'll encourage. Even during the times it's frustrating and times that are trying, equip you to do what you got to do. Teach you to know what you need to know. But it starts with my desire. Because I can't force it on you. No one else can force it upon you. It has to be your desire. But it starts with knowing Him. Do you know Him? And if you know Him, are you walking and growing in Him? Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the testimony of it. We thank You for the fact that it is true, it is real. We thank You for the fact that it teaches us so much of what we need to know day by day. Lord, thank You that it's full of heart, that you're patient with us, you're, you're gracious and merciful to us, Lord, as we are walking with you. But Lord, I pray that you would give us that desire to be bold and courageous, that we would not be ashamed. Because, Lord, it's this very gospel that has changed our life. So, God, I pray that you'd work in hearts this morning. I pray, dear Father, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you. I pray that every one of us in this auditorium, no matter where we're at in our walk with you, Lord, that we would take another step to draw closer to you, to see your hand at work in our midst. So as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as we do each and every week, we have an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. I don't know what God has challenged you with. I don't know what he may have you know, spoke to you regarding. But I know that the examples that he gives us in his word are plentiful. Are you ashamed of God? I hope not. Are you ashamed to be known, to know Jesus and to claim Him? I hope, hopefully not, because He says, "If you're ashamed of Me, I'll be ashamed of you." Are you strengthening those around you? Are you encouraging those around you to keep going even when it's difficult? God will help you through it. You say, Pastor, this morning God has spoke to me. God has challenged me. Would you pray for me this morning? Some things need to change. Would you just pray for me this morning? Yes. In the front, in the back, the sides, in the middle. Yes. Anyone else? Say, Pastor, pray for me. There's some things I need to work on. Yes. In the back. Yes. In the front. Can I just challenge all of us who are sitting here today? I'm not going to ask you to move. not asking you to do anything. I'm just simply going to ask this. If God has challenged you in a specific area and you say, Pastor, I need to work on that. His word has challenged me that I need to improve in that area. Just take a moment where you are and pray. And say, God, help me. God, forgive me for not doing this or doing that or for being ashamed or, or for not showing my, you know, uh, my, my trust and faith in you for whatever the circumstance is, however God has spoken to you. Just take a moment and pray. Right there where you're at and say, God, help me. Help me to abide in you. Help me to live out the purpose for which you created me in. God, help me to put you first. Let's all stand to our feet. Lord, we do thank you for how you work, for how you speak to us, for how you convict us, Lord, even of things that need to change. 
And I pray, dear Father, Lord, that you would do whatever it takes, Lord, in our life, Lord, to draw us closer to you, to make us willing, Lord, to put you first in all these things. Lord, help us to get rid of our selfishness and our pride. Lord, give us boldness and courage, Lord. You said that you would give it to us. Acts 1.8, you said, After this you shall receive power. First Timothy, Lord, said, You didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Lord, we are your ambassadors, and I pray, God, that you'd help us to live as such. Be with each one who raised their hand their heart toward you this morning, Lord, that we would walk in obedience, give them victory this week in these areas. And, Lord, thank you for what you've taught us concerning Paul and Barnabas. May we follow their example, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.